0: One in a hundred sheep is lost. Took Linda about a minute to tell us about that. One in 10 coins is lost. Took another minute to hear that story. One of two sons is lost. Took a few more minutes to hear that story. These are the three stories this morning from Jesus now often in church we come and we hear the first story about the lost sheep we get a 28 minute sermon we go home for the week and we think about it and we come back next Sabbath then we get story number two on the lost coin and a 28 minute sermon 28 minutes and 30 seconds and we go home for the week and think about it and we come back the third week and we get the third story one and two sons and a 28-minute sermon and a week to think about it. But today, Jesus stacks three stories together all at once without stopping for a pause or stepping away from the table. When Luke's gospel writer gives us three stories stacked together like this, no break in between, we're paying attention. Last week, when Pastor Vaughn talked about, and Zach, just leave us with this image for a little while, would you? All three in one. Last week when Pastor Vaughn talked about uh, Jesus' Nazareth synagogue, Luke chapter 4, his inauguration, he reaches for the scroll from Isaiah, and then he adds a couple of stories of his own, from his own family history, from the ancestor's stories, from the nation of Israel, a story about a widow and a story about an army captain, a leper. Jesus telling stories from their family tree, but... Today, in chapter 15, Jesus reaches for stories that didn't actually happen. It's as if he wandered into the fiction section of the bookstore, grabbed for the bestsellers of these short, catchy tales, the ones we all love. And in Luke 15, three of them in one shot. It's a three-for-one today when Jesus stacks lost things together. The case of threes is what we're considering in these minutes. What shall we do when Luke and Jesus insist we read them together? And what can these stories possibly mean? If uh, we get the context wrong, we could get everything wrong. But I'll come back to that at the end. Parable number one, reminder. It's one lost sheep out of a hundred Jesus says, who wouldn't? It's a question. If you had 100, who wouldn't go searching for the 1 and leave the 99? And they might be wondering, but wait a minute. How would you even know 1 is lost out of 100? That's a lot. There's no time to ask questions or think it through. Who wouldn't and bring it home and call your friends and have a party? I don't know because I don't know if I would know if 1 was lost. But it's time for the next story. And who wouldn't if you had 10 coins well, it's easier to find one out of ten coins, isn't it? You, you would go and search for it, turn the lights on, and throw a party, call your friends and neighbors. Well, I don't know. Would I, it would cost me as much to throw a party as it would have to. But there's not time to think about it because then comes the third story. A man has two sons. And one asks for his inheritance and the father gives it. Why would you do that? And, and the son leaves and he acts ridiculous and disrespectful and disgusting. And then he comes to his mind and he decides to come home. And he makes a speech for himself. When I get there, I'll confess and I'll say. And when he shows up, the father sees him and runs for him. Who wouldn't give him your robe over the muddy back and your ring on his dirty little finger? Who wouldn't kiss him and make an extravagant parade in the city? Who wouldn't do any of this? And the people might be thinking, yeah, yeah, but there's not time to actually discuss these stories. Jesus stacks three together, one, two, three. Two of them are kind of lovely, the first two. They're a lot alike, a main character and something's lost and recovered and a party and and, and even the words Luke uses, Jesus uses, the words are similar. With rejoice, and joicing, and gathering together, and repenting. Even the words are similar, but this parable three is quite different. What do we make of these stories? And are we talking about sheeps and coins, or are we talking about people now? Because sheeps and coins can't actually repent, can they? Sheeps and coins can't actually say, I'm sorry, can they? Are we talking about sheeps and coins, or are we talking about people? What do these stories mean? What can they possibly mean? The children of the church, this denomination, when I was a kid growing up, we would read the Guide magazine. It was called the Junior Guide for a while. The Guide is that little book that's full of stories for 10 to 14-year-olds. And often, often, when I was a kid growing up, at the end of these stories in the Guide, the Junior Guide, the author of the story would say, and the moral of the story is, and you can't skip that part, there would be a paragraph with the moral of the story. I had a teacher like that in elementary school. When we would read a story together, she would always end with, and the moral of the story is. Children, what is the moral of the story? We sometimes hear parables and other stories, but parables today, we, we sometimes hear them this way. There, there must be one moral, and let me tell it to you, and over the ages in the Christian church, we absolutely have done this with parables in our New Testament. It's not the only way, though, we hear them. And by the way, if there is only one moral of these stories, and if someone has determined what this is, we don't really need to read the text again today. We don't need to consider it fresh in 2019. Sometimes we hear these stories and we allegorize the stories. We make an allegory. One author says those early church fathers, they never met an allegory they didn't like. That's what they did with all these stories. Oh, the sheep is a believer who's sinning and who's fallen and wandered astray. And Jesus is the shepherd or the woman sweeping going after the sinning coin. And the the party people are the church. They've all come together. And everything stands for something else in the story. We allegorize these parables quite frequently. And the thoughtful student would ask the question, but does Jesus really lose things? Can God lose people? Did, Did God do that or did the people do that? Thoughtful students would press that kind of a reading of these parables. Humans have been telling stories from the beginning. From the beginning of time, we've told stories. This week, I read again, looked again at this 1944 experiment. to psychologists, if you've come through a class at the university, You've probably seen this little experiment. The two psychologists, Heider and Simmel, or Simmel, Simmel, they make this animated little film in 1944, and then they ask people to watch it. It's very short, one minute. And, and then they ask the question, what do you see? What is happening here? Zach's going to play it for us. What do we see? That, that, that film is just begging for a soundtrack, isn't it? <laughs> it's really hard for me to not start humming but that would influence our scene. What did you see? And if I asked you to text in your answer today, do any of them sound like this list of quite common responses? What do you see in this? People say things like, well, that's certainly some kind of an abusive relationship. Uh, I saw an angry, drunk dad who doesn't approve of his daughter's boyfriend. It's a, vid- it's a video about a family. The big triangle represents the husband and the smaller one is the wife and the small dot is the child and the husband hits the wife and the child wants to save the mom but he's unable to and at the end the wife and the child flee leaving the husband behind. The big triangle is Dorothy, the small triangle is Hubert and the little ball is called Gafar. and they're playing games and in the end Dorothy has a meltdown. What did you see when you look at this? Someone said, the large triangle is a narcissist. Someone else says, the large triangle is a victim of a home invasion. Yep, that's what I saw, a home invasion. But someone else said, the little triangle and the circle are in cahoots. Maybe it's a a home invasion. Someone's vandalizing their house, except for the large triangle gets caught. It catches them in the act. And the little triangle then becomes belligerent, and they start harassing the large triangle, and the large triangle isn't going to have any of it, and the circle realizes it's dangerous and tries to hide in the house, but the big triangle returns. This needs a soundtrack, too, doesn't it? The big triangle returns and begs for forgiveness, and, and then the little circle, they run away, and the big triangle is furious and smashes stuff. What did you see? Someone answered this way. Go, little triangle! Your brave fight against the Big Triangle shall not be forgotten. Someone else said, It is the kitchen scene from Jurassic Park. (laughs) Google it this afternoon, you will agree. It will pop up quick. Kitchen scene, Jurassic Park. Someone else said, This is clearly a Greek tragedy. Another person says, "Uh, there's an invisible hand randomly, pointlessly moving shapes around on a flat surface. And the psychologists note, Over the generations, the psychologists note that human beings, you and I, are eager to ascribe to non-human objects human realities. We are eager to make them people and characters and they're having experiences and they're moving around with convictions and ideas. Our mind is ready to identify and to assign personalities and to engage in some kind of a narrative. They tell us even children under the age of one year can already identify bullies and victims. We've been storytelling for a long time. Several of you sent me a link this week to NPR's story, Storytelling uh, Above the Arctic Circle, Thank you for that. I love when you send these articles. You sent something about with the Inuit storytellers. These are those who live Greenland, Canada, Alaska, up high. And in the Inuit storytelling rhythm, their goal is that they not yell at their children. There's no anger and there's no time out and there's not punishment. And they live where it's really cold. That would be summer. And the way they do this, the way they train their children is through this storytelling so that instead of uh, sending them to timeout and yelling warnings and punishments over them, they tell them stories. So among their collection of favorite stories raising their children are stories that sound like this. In the sea lives a sea monster. The sea monster has a pouch on his back for little children, and when little children walk close to the ocean, the sea monster puts little children in his pouch and goes to the bottom of the ocean and adopts them out to other families. There's a story about the Northern Lights, those beautiful, glorious lights in the sky. Did you know what those northern lights are for? That's so that when little children are walking outside, the northern lights are watching you. If your hat is not on your head, covering your head, the northern lights will come and take your head off and use it for a soccer ball. But we say this with a very kind tone. There is another story about earwax to teach children to listen to their elders. There's another story about very long hands that come up out of nowhere and take children's food off of their plate if, if they haven't asked permission for food before they serve themselves. Now, we can, we can talk about the trauma of these stories, which some of us did in the office this week. It fascinates me. We can talk about the trauma of these stories. We might as well sing them, um, there was an old woman who lived in a shoe kind of thing. However, this is how they shape and grow their children, and their children then do not repeat these angry, repetitive, shouting habits. We've been telling stories for a long, long time. We can go to Kenya, we can go around the world, we'll find the same dynamic of indigenous people shaping the next generation through the wisdoms of stories. Sometimes the stories are speaking truth to power in some of these cases. Sometimes these stories are ways of resisting or preserving what belongs to a people in a place, especially in places where there are disruptive powers. Sometimes these stories teach the younger ones and the people how to sustain their lives as they've come to know them. We can follow people to the Philippines, to the nor- one of the northern mountainous regions, the, uh, the Aita indigenous group in the northern Philippines. They tell stories too. We, we understand that once we've had fire and flame, we could stay up later in the night and tell our stories, even when the sun is down, we can still gather. The anthropologists tell us that most of the stories that happen after, most of the conversation after dark with the fire, they're storytelling. It's not gossip, it's not economics, it's not the business of the day, it's not the chore list for tomorrow, it's storytelling. Here's some of the stories they tell in the northern Philippines with this little group. There's a story, of dispute between the sun and the moon as to who will illuminate the sky. It's a story about equality. There's a story they tell that happens between the wild pig and the sea cow. It's a story that talks about group cooperation. They tell a story about the winged ant, a story about acceptance. There's a story about the monkey and the giant. That's a story about group identity. So many of these stories pertain to relationships, all of them. Relationships between people, between the younger and the older, relationship with the land and the forest and the resources and the animals in an area of our world that's very much threatened. Its ecosystem is very much threatened. Humans have been telling stories since the beginning. So into this experience, a sinning sheep, right, right? And a repenting coin doesn't sound so silly, does it? Can sheep sin? Can coins repent? Well, I don't know. Let's tell a story. Into all of this, Jesus begins speaking in parables. Challenge for us is that there's not one list of parables somewhere where we can go and identify these are all of the parables and this is exactly how Jesus told them that they were oral tradition just like these stories around the campfire so when luke sits down to write to the most honorable theophilus a very careful account of what he remembers he remembers Jesus once upon a time stacking these three parables together and Jesus even says i'm going to tell you a parable jesus signals us what to listen for it's a parable that means it's not going to be a sweet story with one moral and an ending. It's going to be a different kind of story. Sometimes the Bible does that, church. Sometimes it cues us how to understand what we're reading. The book of Revelation does this in the very first chapter. Those of you who have been studying it in your Sabbath school classes this quarter, the very first chapter, we see one like the Son of Man who we begin to understand is Jesus moving in and around. He walks and touches and talks to the churches and says, do not be afraid. Which means we can't use any of the rest of the book of Revelation to teach people to fear. Sometimes the Bible tells us how it wants to be interpreted. When Jesus says, let me tell you a parable, he's saying, buckle up, because what's coming will be disruptive. What's coming will cause us to reevaluate our relationships and economy and wealth and solidarity and, uh, and, and competition. Buckle up, because what's coming will be surprising. You won't guess how this one ends. Jill Amy Levine says... I love this line uh, Amy Jill Levine says if we come across the parable and we say oh I really like that one it's my favorite we haven't actually heard the parable we haven't actually listened yet because none of them can really be our favorites because they're disruptive they're short but not simple they're not well-behaved little stories if you've read your worship guide this morning parables come to us and present challenges so if we miss the context, when Jesus says, let me tell you a parable, we will miss everything. Can we back up and look at Luke 15, verse 1 and 2? This is what's happening that day when Jesus stacks three short stories. All the tax collectors and the sinners are gathering around Jesus to listen to him. The Pharisees and the legal experts are grumbling, saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. This This is why they got three stories stacked in one, because there's a charge against Jesus. This man, this man, here he goes again. We've already heard this in Luke's gospel early on in chapter 5, chapter 7. We've already been told that tax collectors and sinners are rather attracted to Jesus. This is the charge. This man, the problem is Jesus is attractive to people. Don't you hate that? The problem is God is attractive to people. The problem is people are attracted to God. All kinds of people are attracted to God. That is such a problem. This is the charge when Jesus begins to stack the parables together. And then in Luke's storytelling and in only Luke's storytelling, when Jesus tells a little parable, he adds this part. Luke 15, verse seven, after we hear the story of the lost sheep, in the same way i tell you there will be no more joy in heaven there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who changes both heart and life than over the 99 righteous people who have no need to change their lives and their hearts and then jesus tells the parable of the woman and the coin and in luke's storytelling he adds in the same way i tell you joy breaks out in the presence of god's angels over one sinner who changes both heart and life when Luke puts these parables in Jesus' mouth, there's this extra little para, pa, these extra little paragraphs about repentance. And we ought to imagine Jesus looking to the people who charged him that day. We ought to imagine Jesus looking to the religious leaders who are so frustrated that day as if he's glancing over and saying to them, there is more room for people to be attracted to God's ideas. How do I know that? that these parables are addressed to the few religious people? Well, friends, which among you who has a hundred sheep, if you lost one? You'd have to be wealthy to have a hundred sheep. Which among you, if you have a pile of coins, you'd have to be kind of wealthy to have a pile of coins? Which among you, if you had a large estate and herd and slaves? The peasants listening that day have none of these things. Oh, but the religious leaders might. God will work close to bring one out of a hundred. Oh, yes, God will. By the way, do you notice when things are lost around you, religious leaders? God will work to bring, to bring close one out of ten. And by the way, religious leaders, will you take responsibility if you lose one out of ten circled around you? God will work close to bring one son who's far away, close, and by the way, God the the Father has compassion and care. It's not like the Roman father image you're used to seeing, religious leaders. And did you notice that the younger son didn't even confess? He had a whole paragraph ready, but it never happened. Do you notice there wasn't even a moment for a great repentance confession scene, those of you listening? And did you notice that, that the elder brother and the father, this parable stops, but it doesn't end. The older brother and the father are standing in the field. And we learn that one can be present and also lost. All stacked together, these three parables, they begin to agitate and trouble us a little bit, one upon the other, upon the other, compounding of these three stories. The good people listening to Jesus that day, what do they hear? The good people sitting in Riverside today. That God is attracting people to God. All kinds of people, what do you hear today? Riverside, 2019. I cannot help but hear this parable with the people of New Zealand on my mind. I can't help but hear the parable without thinking about 49 funerals, because there were people who were attracted to God, kneeling for a blessing in their own repentance service, and a in a small town that needs to bury, that probably already buried many brothers and sisters. Yesterday when I listened to the press release from the Islamic Center in Southern California, down in Los Angeles, it was so moving and beautiful. The good people of Los Angeles stand together to affirm each other and to stand against all forms of hatred and bigotry. And as the person at the Islamic Center looked left and right, and the stage was all full, her eyes began to fill with tears. She said, we're among friends and friends of faith and strangers. She didn't even know all the people who'd shown up to support them down in L.A. yesterday. Most moving to me was the speech that came from the rabbi. Who said, please know we stand with you now, your holy stites, and your holy body and your bodies have been threatened and we weep because people have found god attractive and because other people are troubled by those people friends after church today this is why you'll see the cards on the side of the platform here Some of this will go to New Zealand, we will scan and send. This is our custom to send messages of comfort and care. We can have all kinds of competing ideas in our own life and heart and mind right now. And we can still stand with God's creatures wounded. This is why we go through this ritual. Two of them will be local for our Islamic center here in Riverside. One for the Islamic center in Corona, Norco. What do these stories mean? Many people suggest there's a better question to ask when we read the parables of Jesus. Not, what do these stories mean? What do these stories do? What do they do inside of you and I? What do they do inside of our lives? What do they compel us to rearrange? Jesus says once, one in a hundred was lost, one in ten was lost, and one in two was lost. And God will not rest or settle for any lost people. Amen.